Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Get your pens out and be ready to take notes, for this podcast is packed with insights that you won't want to miss. This week, I am joined by Fred Brown. Fred is President and CEO of the Forbes Funds. Their focus, strengthening the management capacity and impact of community nonprofits in the Pittsburgh area of the US. Fred's list of skills is expansive. A climate justice trainer, environmental justice leader, policy analyst, adjunct professor, dean of students, teacher, coach, mentor, certified juvenile justice judges trainer, certified conflict mediation and resolution trainer, master consultant, supervisor, director, and executive director of non-profit organisations since 1987. But what this conversation reveals is that Fred is in reality a rare visionary. During our conversation, you will hear what Fred expects to be the big themes, not just for the next five years, which he shares in great detail, but the next 30. Fred advises us on the books that we should be reading. He shares candidly his experiences and actions surrounding creating equality and equity, and how he as a black male leader leads in a city notable for some of its less equitable actions. If nothing else, this conversation is a positive reminder of what we can all do if we just apply ourselves. Fred, welcome. Hey, how are you doing? It's great to be on with you, Katie. So Fred, I wonder whether you could just start us off by explaining a little more about the Forbes Funds. A great question. The Forbes Funds was started in 1982, and it's an intermediary foundation supported by the Pittsburgh Foundation, particularly, and other foundations over the years to provide capacity building support to the nonprofit sector. In Southwestern PA, there are approximately um, 2,500 nonprofits that fall within the framework of human services and community development. Um, There's about 8,500 in the region. And so what we try to do is focus on building the capacity of those institutions in the region so that they can better affect and make change to critical issues that uh, serve vulnerable and resilient populations. And I'm curious to know a bit about your role there as a CEO, but also what's potentially motivated you to, to join the Forbes Fund? Well, that's a longer question. I will try to answer that succinctly. Over the last 38 years prior to me coming to the Forbes Funds, I was a staunch supporter of diversity. And so I was often challenging what I would call downtown to hire minorities and people of color in diverse groups and C-suite opportunities and positions. When the position became open three years ago, I was approached by a headhunter to apply for the job, and I was 
I really liked the job I had. I loved the job I had. I was the president and CEO of the Homewood Children's Village. I was in year two of a five-year framework I had put together. And so I did not want to leave. I sat on the question that was posed to me, recognizing that I could no longer speak out publicly about downtown's inability to recruit minority talent if I didn't even apply and they asked me to apply. So I applied for the job. And I really believed in my heart I would never get the job because this is Pittsburgh. It's pretty well known as a racist, segregated city for the most part. And there had never never been a person of color that has led the Forbes funds. A male, a black male in particular, there's never been a black male that has led the Forbes funds. There's been other diverse leaders who have led the Forbes funds. So I want to clear that up. But So I applied for the job. There were close to 100 applicants. I made the top five. And I thought, oh, that was interesting. Pittsburgh is the home of the Rooney Rule, where it's pretty much a professional mandate to at least interview a person of color. And so I didn't think anything of it. Then I made the top three. And um, it got interesting. And they asked me my big idea. What's your big idea? So I put my big idea on paper created a PowerPoint presentation, and they pretty much, I think, enamored with the presentation and asked me, well, how would that work? And so when I told them specifically how the mechanisms would work, protocols, ROIs, projected impacts, my thought at that moment that I sold myself on being a thought leader that looked at the future and would optimize that platform. And so I was excited when I actually got the call that I was the chosen person. I didn't believe it. I was actually in the planning commission meeting, took the call, stepped out in the hallway, and um, the agency that recruited me told me they they picked me. You're the guy. I was like, the guy for what? They lead to forest funds. I said, you're kidding me. And she said, no, you're the person. You're the guy. And so that started the last 34-month odyssey, which has been a journey of self-discovery in many ways about the unwritten rules of the work, the institutional racism that still exists in Pittsburgh, hidden messages that leaders have to be ready to grapple with, and the importance of having a fervent belief in your mission and sticking to your beliefs and practices. And this journey has been, I would tell you, it's been probably one of the most challenging professional journeys I've had because of all of the obstacles that have been a part of my journey so far. And Fred, am I allowed to ask, what was your big idea and have you managed to kind of keep it going as it happened? Yes. So my big idea was, I felt that the number of nonprofits in our region had some duplication and some underperforming. And if we could use the Forbes funds, and in particular, our Greater Pittsburgh Nonprofit Partnership, GPMP, as the front door of our work, in five years, we could potentially have 100% of the end through our, our model that would ensure that all of the nonprofits in our region were exposed to and had access to our tools. And that access and utilization of those tools would create a more formidable, transparent, effective and efficient system. And so I would tell you that in the first quarter, we froze our assets, partnered with the Community Research Advisory Board, the CRAB, 
which is a part of the University of Pittsburgh. And we use them to create a new measurement tool for assessing grants. And so that deviation created a different platform for us to offer grant opportunities to the sector through the utilization of the social determinants of health as a platform. That platform also required, because of the social determinants of health, a need for strategic collaboration with other nonprofits so that any request that we receive would, in fact, require you to work alongside other partners to achieve a measurable outcome. And the theory there was that through this cluster grant-making process, we would create a more organic way for institutions to look at their back office needs, share staff, um, look at emerging practices in the sector, look at back office supports, and reduce the duplication of services through this model. And so in our first four quarters of reopening our grant making process, our grant making framework increased by 400%. And so we believe that we were able to create a paradigm shift in the sector by funneling resources in a strategic way through a cluster grant making process that resulted in more alignment in the system and adherence to a nationally recognized framework, the social determinants of health. And we had another component to that. We reverse engineered the outputs of our grants to the UNSDGs. Concurrently, we were working with the city of Pittsburgh to have Pittsburgh be recognized as the second US city to adopt the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so our work was ahead of the curve with regards to our region's pivot and our grant making since I've been on board has been 100% aligned with the social determinants of health. Every dollar that we've executed thus far can be aligned to one of those five areas. I would say the other thing that happened concurrently is that we were selected by the London School of Systems Change as a partner for a six-month project to look at systems change at a macro level. That work really helped take the vision I presented to the board to the next level. And it revealed for us a dichotomy that I was unaware of at the time of my original vision. In essence, my vision focused on optimizing nonprofits in their current status that will ultimately increase the effectiveness of the economy. So my model in truth fostered greater economic return. I was uncomfortable with that return because it didn't honor humanity. And so last year, we began to pivot the model to adopt the use of human-centered design and look at how we use co-created ecosystems to take existing strong markets and systems application and move them to ecosystems co-creations. And the theory there is pretty simple. Einstein said you cannot solve a problem with the same energy that created the problem. And so for us, we believe that through this new paradigm shift, we would create more iteration in the sector, which would ultimately produce collective genius. And so we feel confident that our work is helping to pioneer the work in the region the state, the country, and some places in the world in a different way that honors humanity as the true asset to our sector. You talk about our sector. It's really interesting. You talk 
and taken us through that, Fred, because it's a number of things that we hear a lot through Business Fights Poverty, the work that we do, but also a number of the different sectors that we interact with. So whether it's the social impact teams within bigger businesses, whether they're social enterprises, whether it's um, whomever, you know, that kind of collaboration, co-creation, working with your community, really understanding your, your sort of measurements and sort of impacts trying to really link it into and, and adhere it to a sort of bigger framework, something bigger than you are. So whether it's the UNSDGs or otherwise. But Fred, thank you so much for sharing. Now, we are recording this podcast at the tail end of 2020, and the world is arguably still trying to figure out the impacts of COVID-19 and the global pandemic. From your quite unique position, Fred, what impacts are you seeing that others might not be seeing and perhaps you wouldn't mind sharing them with us? Well, that's a great question. One of the first things I saw and have seen over the past 38 weeks is that there is a difference between people who are leaders and their functionality. And I, what I mean by that is I've run across a number of high-level meetings where Leaders were more focused on managing than leading. And I would define the two as managers are effective at optimizing systems that have been put in place to solve an issue. Leaders are more able to be agile and iterative and in the face of adversity or challenges, think about new methodologies and practices that may need to be brought to bear to resolve a set of new challenges to a particular discipline. And so what I saw and heard over the, you know, many of the early months of COVID was a lot of people hearkening back to the past. And these are leaders that were, you know, saying, I wish we could get back to February 2020. I wish we could, I can't wait till we get back to normal. And I kept looking at them saying, what are they talking about? Like, there's no getting back to that. There's a new normal and we have to adjust our lens given at this time, the particular trajectory of COVID and the impact on a global level, that our global lens needed to shift significantly to adopt new methodology. And I would say that I did not see that. And I was shocked by the lack of forward thinking. The other thing I realized as I started to dive deeper into this, this set of quandaries was that there were a lot of people in leadership positions that were in trauma, undiagnosed or some version of trauma that was triggering their inability to innovate, in my opinion, because many of them were using their failsafe, which is to fall back on what I know how to do. It was very difficult to talk to them about problem solving. They were like, well, we'll just do this. And I was like, well, that's what you used to do. That's not going to work. And so there was a lack of nimbleness of these systems to really be agile and iterative. And as a result, I think it really stagnated the ability to create a pivot during the initial phases of COVID. And I think this was further exacerbated by the resources that were garnered to support systems and prop up institutions that probably should have thought about pivoting. And so we saw a real sharp decline in innovation we saw an increase in transactional activity that really didn't garner collective genius. It garnered 
giving people a fish as opposed to teaching them how to fish, to put it mildly. That in and of itself, to me, is a missed opportunity because in essence, when the world is in the, in the balance, the most opportune time to bring the diversity of thought to the table is now. And it's to create a level playing field that all thoughts and ideas are warranted given what we're facing. And so when you think about our work, at least the way I think about it, I think about our work in like a 30-year trajectory. And so if you take into account your question, Katie, around 2020, in addition to what I saw in the sector, you know what you witnessed abroad in the U.S. is a very sharp divide between our political affiliations. You also probably notice an increase in armed civil unrest. And so in 2020, we have to deal with, as a, as a country, what is the role of our government to heal our citizens? Um, in 2021, we have to confront immediately the impact of rental and mortgage moratoriums being lifted. In 2022, in my opinion, once the vaccination is applied and we hit herd immunity, we have to deal with a COVID recovery plan. 2023, there's a need, in my opinion, to address racial equity as a formalized framework. 2024, I think it's critically important to have a strong pathway to deal with income inequality. 2025, I think it's critical to look at the role of AI learning and AI machine learning in the nonprofit sector as a new pathway to increase effectiveness and efficiency. And then, of course, we have our big indicators, 2030, climate change, 2040, the minority population in the U.S. will shift to the majority. And then in 2050, 70% of the world's population will move to the urban corridor. These critical shifts will not be events. They'll be part of a longitudinal process that, in my opinion, requires all people be a part of our process today and not at some later time in the near future, but to take into account the diversity that's needed to problem solve along this axis. And I do not see that. And so I'm very concerned by that. And I will share with you too that during the last 38 weeks, the Forbes Funds has facilitated 1,099 Zoom meetings with 13,760 participants since COVID hit. We believe that this work that we do on the ground has really provided us with insights into understanding the possible connectivity with corporations that are focused on social good that allows us to explore creating bridges that heretofore haven't existed. They really take into account this 30-year trajectory and how through a shared racial equity lens framework, we can actually create salient responses to support the entire sector and region and diversity of thought, practice and belief. Fred, I want to dive into a little bit more. You mentioned and picked up a few times around sort of diversity, but also inequality issues at a time with deepening inequalities on a number of different spectra. Where are the rays of light and hope and how can we grasp them, Fred, so that we can potentially rebuild better? That's a terrific question. I think there are several levels that leaders 
in my opinion, must adhere to, to really create hope in the sector and in our country and in our world. I think we have to move beyond the theoretical to the metaphysical, i.e., we have to stop talking about diversity and gender inequality and really act and do diligence to eradicate the issues we're concerned about as leaders. I can speak for myself. Since my arrival at the Forest Funds, we have greatly diversified our team. It represents a cross-sector of people from different backgrounds and use and social economic strata. It also is primarily comprised of women. And I say that with a level of pride because we sought to get the best and brightest people to manifest our vision. And when we interviewed these women, they just outshined everybody else. And I remember sharing with my board our decisions we were making and I felt uncomfortable because I felt like it looked like I was just hiring people of color. And so I had my board sit in on some last round of interviews so they could see what I was seeing, which is we were getting some phenomenal talent. And that talent has allowed us to lift our, our work to a higher level in a very short amount of time. If you look at our metric, I haven't been in the seat three years yet, and we've pretty much exceeded a lot of baseline outputs very quickly. And we've galvanized the sector in a way that has brought to bear a reduction and duplication of services, increases in effectiveness and efficiency, alignment with the social determinants of health, coordinated with the alignment with the UNSDGs. We've been able to push for built environment changes, policy changes, and actually groom new talent and have created a new leadership continuum to look at uh, millennials as the next ecosystem that has to be cultivated to really shift this work. I would also say that working with opposite sex is important to model if you're promoting harmony in your ecosystem. If I value difference, if my culture is such that I want to create harmony among and between people, it seems logical to me that my staff, in particular, my senior staff, have to represent a cross-sector of the values of our society. They have to represent and look like the images of the people we see in the world. They have to be in alignment with the global trajectory of the spaces we wish, we wish to live, work, and play in. And so I think leaders that talk about Black Lives Matter and all these other things, to me, they have to move beyond that to real action. And I'll give you an example. In addition to my board adopting a racial equity list for our work after my letter to the Pittsburgh Business Times about when you can't walk away, my board also supported the implementation of a new international cohort we're launching, which is an international anti-racism institutional wireframe cohort that is a year-long project that moves beyond DE&I to actually explore institutions that really wanna make changes to do institutional changes. And we have consulted with the Department of the Future, Mark Gonzalez out of Seuss, Tunisia. Our local partners are the University of Pittsburgh, 
and the Heinz Endowment. And we've invited 70 companies and organizations from around the world to participate in this year-long effort. And the goal is to basically call out those institutions who really believe equity is important and to take the importance of that framework and to apply it in a meaningful way that we produce a dashboard that looks at the growth and trajectory of those organizations, as well as the predictability of ROIs within the sector. And so our team is working on the final business plan as we speak. We had our meeting this morning with our two Seuss Tunisia partners, and we are looking at devising multiple ROIs so that it has some attraction to corporations that want to do social good because we do recognize that corporations are businesses, but so are nonprofits. And so we also want to shift the mindset of nonprofits to stop thinking as a grant-only institution. And so this past year during COVID, we've created a nonprofit leadership continuum that's focused on entrepreneurial mindsets for nonprofit leaders, HR cohort around COVID, a COVID scenario planning process, and a COVID succession planning framework. These things were intended to create structural changes in institutions that created alignment with the UNSDGs in a way that would lift those corporations' ability to compete more fervently within that ecosystem based upon a structured framework around diversity. And for anybody who's listening to this podcast, I will put the links to Fred's work and also potentially to him, if you wouldn't mind, um, so that you can follow up with this important these important activities and potentially get hold of some of these tools or, or sign up to be part of the cohorts. Fred, I mean, you're clearly managing to achieve so much, both in terms of innovation, but also measurable outcomes and impact. You're obviously staying super present. You've got an eye on the super local, but also the global issues at the same time. How do you do it? I mean, what would be your advice to others? How do you stay resilient, stay on it, and quite frankly, get things done? Wow, that's a, to be honest with you, I have to first acknowledge my spiritual framework. I believe I'm just a vessel put here at this time in the universe to share my gifts, skills, and talents to create harmony and balance in the world. I believe that each of us have a dharma that we must fulfill. And my life force energy is really focused on what we can contribute to affect climate change in the most immediate way possible by including people in that process so that they're actual participants in the change process. I would say, secondly, having a staff and teammates that they don't always get the big idea, but they're willing to ride with you while you have the idea and they're willing to play catch up. I've found over the years that not many people can track visionaries' work in a tangible way. They're attracted to the words that are being said. But when they actually start applying them, they require different metrics. When you're co-creating and you're not just working through your own system, the kind of patience that you need to work across sector is it's incredible. 
but the benefit is exponential. And so I will give you an example. 37 weeks ago, 38 weeks ago, public officials asked me to speak to the issue of COVID impact on people of color communities. Um, 38 weeks later, we've created eight COVID task force that really have buckled down into looking at data analysis, community engagement, messaging, policy work, testing, leadership, uh, statewide coordination, research applications. And we've been doing this work pro bono for 37 weeks. We just started raising money for this group two months ago and have received a small amount of resources to get us through the first quarter of our budgeted framework. And the goal, you know, really has been selling people on a vision that's bigger than them. And so to me, the success that you hear me referring to in this podcast is not anything I've done. It's the invitation to invite courageous people to be in a space that they can explore their ideas unabated and to give them spaces to learn forward and to apply their methodologies in a cross-sectoral way. I can tell you that the epigeneticists, bioethicists, doctors, and other professionals on our team have really shared with me that this has been one of the most rewarding professional experiences they've had because they got, they've had the opportunity to work with people in different professional backgrounds and hear how they problem solve. And so, you know, I was talking to some researchers a few months ago and I asked, asked them like, what excites you about this work? And two of them wrote me long letters about how exciting this work is, how exhilarating it is, how free it is to be able to test ideas in the field in real time and to get construct validity about the application. And so what we've done is basically created an innovation lab that allows some of the best and brightest people to bring the better ideas across a sector application that forces people to grapple with the applicability of an idea given the trajectory and typography of a region. And I think, you know, we have been successful because, in my opinion, you have to share leadership. You have to, I would say, number one, have a vision that people can buy into. You have to optimize the gift, skills, and talents of the people in your circle. You have to concurrently do a gap analysis to problem solve. And then you have to give people space to iterate. And then you have to allow that process to be applied and assessed in a way that there's a constant feedback loop. And to me, now that's challenging. I would tell you that I don't get much sleep. I really spend an exorbitant amount of time coaching. And I will tell people that, you know, probably have done this work. I am a eclectic leader. I mean, I will tell you that I use Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I use Covey's uh, Principal Center Leadership Model. I use Blanchard's Situational Leadership Model. I use uh, Collins' Good to Great Work. I use Servant Leadership Frameworks. I use Oba Tashaka's Art of Leadership. I use the Leap of Reasoning, Leading Change. I just try to look at practices that exist in the sector to speak to the diversity of the sector. 
And I try to find ways to integrate that into an ecosystem that honors difference towards a shared vision uh, for the entire group. And then the other thing we do is we track progress. We give people weekly updates about the progress we're having and the challenges. And so we just had a call last night with the huddle, which is I would call the brain trust of this group, to really reconsider our work as being becoming too widespread and you know inch deep and a mile wide. And so we have to say, okay, are we going to be most effective with that strategy? And I would say the last thing we've been able to do, which I think is very critical for leaders, is when you find somebody that does something better than you do, to invite them into your, your body of work and give them agency to do what they do better than you. I found most leaders resistant to that. And I build machinery that's iterative and agile, that's capable of making uh, quick changes in nimbleness and be nimble because the world is requiring that. If we don't have the capacity anymore, nothing. I think this is a big problem with most businesses is that most businesses are based upon a waterfall model for developing its construct, where I believe new businesses have to operate through rapid prototyping, both in the corporate sector and nonprofit sector. I think that's where there's a unique opportunity for collaboration. Well, on that note, Fred Brown, I'm sad to say that brings us to the end of our conversation here today now. But as I said before to anybody who's listening I will share lots of links in the words that sit alongside this so that hopefully you can equally grasp all those fantastic books ideas and thoughts that Fred has shared today. Fred thank you so much for your wisdom insight vision and advice. Thank you sir. Thank you for having me on Katie this is great appreciate you. Pleasure. And if you like what you've heard today please do rate and subscribe to us I would also love to hear your feedback, so please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.